Thank you for joining us for this discussion hosted by the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. I'm Jessica Hughes, Senior Lecturer in Classical Studies here at The Open University. And I'm joined today by my Open University colleagues, Dr. Marion Bowman from the Department of Religious Studies and Dr. Emma-Jane Graham from the Department of Classical Studies. And we're very pleased to welcome Professor Maureen Carroll from the University of Sheffield to talk about her work on fertility cults and associated votives in early Roman religion. Maureen, what do we mean when we talk about fertility cults in ancient Italic contexts? I think most people's understanding of a fertility cult would be that there were certain gods, primarily goddesses in the popular imagination, who were there to assist humans with matters of motherhood, fertility, birth, and child health. And that these are not only deities to which one would worship and uh, which one would approach with a petition uh, for a favourable outcome, for example, uh, of a pregnancy, but also that these cults might be located in a particular place, in a particular temple, or in a particular region in the landscape to which you would go to make these petitions uh, to receive the blessing of the deity and then return home hoping for the best when did you start working on this topic? Well, uh, my interest in it goes back some time to when I began working on um, infancy, Roman infant death and burial, not a very cheery topic. Uh, but I was aware of the fact that there were petitions to the gods, particularly important uh, given the high mortality rates of children in antiquity. And it intrigued me uh, that people might find solace and help uh, with the divine. So I'd say it was sort of on my radar by about 2012, uh, but it crystallized out as a project in about 2014. And then 2016, I spent the entire spring working on this project. So it, it goes back quite a way. And why do you think that the topic of fertility cults and early infancy is so important for understanding the past? I mean, it clearly is, but can you summarize why it's so important? I think it's the human element that interests me. Uh, these are, are real lives of people who had to deal with all kinds of adversities. And with the, with the idea of a cult and praying for fertility, praying for conception, praying for a healthy childbirth, these are the most fundamental and essential things to the human existence. And it's not something that pertains only to women. It pertains also to men, their husbands, and to the rest of the family, the survival, the continuity of the family. And the family is the building block of Roman society. So knowing how it works in this physical sense and what measures people took to make sure that they would be able to continue the family is something very fundamental to me. Now, recently you've been focusing on the cult of Mata Matuta. Can you give us some background to that cult? Well, Mata Matuta is attested from about the 6th century BC. Uh, the two places that seem to be the oldest where she was worshipped are Rome itself and another town south of Rome called Satricum. In both places, a temple has been excavated. Uh, we know through historical sources and epigraphic sources, inscriptions and so on, uh, that this goddess was worshipped there. But she is a bit mysterious uh, we don't know when the cult began, if it was older than the 6th century or the 7th century at Satricum. We have no evidence for her. 
But uh, and she does seem to be a goddess that is primarily worshipped in the area around Rome, in the ancient province of Latium. So she's an indigenous goddess, one who later seems a little bit marginal. She doesn't seem to be one of the main goddesses or gods of the Roman pantheon, uh, but she does have temples and adherents elsewhere. And she fits very nicely into this period where even minor gods can have shrines and have devotees and have gifts made to them. Um, and it's been really interesting to try and find out more about her because she is so enigmatic. And most of, I think, the preconceived notions about what she looked like, what she did, what her properties were, etc., um, turn out to be, I wouldn't say wrong, that's a bit strong, but a little bit misguided because she still, after working on her for quite some time, is quite enigmatic. One site that people do associate with Matamatuta is the site of Capua, where we have the big Tufa statues. Um, can you tell us about that site? Yeah, it's a very interesting site. There's nothing to be seen of it today, but it's just outside the eastern gates of ancient Capua. Uh, the site was discovered in the middle of the 19th century by the owner of the land, who started digging and finding these statues, finding the, the podium of the temple, etc., uh, began to profit from the sale of these statues um, and then apparently worrying about getting in trouble with the law decided to obliterate all the evidence for this clandestine digging reburied a lot of the statues um, smashed up what was left of the temple uh, and it was another 20 or 30 years after that till he came back to uncover some more and during that time, this is the late 19th century, some of these statues were sold to various European museums where you can see them now. Uh, but it was a major sanctuary, um, and I think a sanctuary in which indigenous Campanian or Capuan gods were worshipped. Uh, it's not a Roman site. Uh, it doesn't have the Roman pantheon represented there. It clearly was a major sanctuary tied to the identity of, of Capua as a wealthy capital city of the entire region. And I know you've been focusing on the statues as part of your recent research project. Can you tell us a bit about the statues, how they used to be studied, how you've studied them, and how your view of them has evolved over the course of your research projects? Well, they are sometimes thought of as being uh, cult statues. Um, you will read in a lot of the literature, in particular the popular literature today, that they are statues of Matamatuta. But when we remind ourselves that a temple might have a cult statue, a cult statue, uh, and then when you do um, a tally of all the statues from that sanctuary that we know, it's at least 160. We also have the uh, existence of three of the statues that have a dedicatory inscription written on them that show that these are not images of the goddess or a goddess, but they are votive offerings given by mortal women to someone uh, because they've been given the gift of a child. Um, so I think I've moved away entirely from the idea of them being cult statues or images of goddesses. They are images of mortal Capuan women. Um, they are still referred to as Matamatuta, but they are not her. And she is, I think, being a Latin goddess, not the type of goddess who would be worshipped in Campania. So I'd like to think of them as rather ostentatious, expensive, unique, votive offerings, thank offerings for pregnancy and childbirth.
Marion, you've worked on fertility votives in later periods, including 20th century Catholicism. Do you recognise any similarities with the votive material that Maureen's been telling us about? I think there definitely are similarities. And for me, it all gets down to materiality and relationality and the way that people can use material objects to express a relationship with the other than human. So in my context, I've worked for many years on a saint called Saint Gerard Magella, who was born in 1726 in Italy. He died in 1755. So you have to say for a start, not the Virgin Mary, not Saint Anne, the mother of Mary, but a sickly male virgin who dies young is not an obvious candidate to become the mother saint and the patron of expectant mothers. So here, some of the materiality is really rather interesting. And what I find fascinating is devotion to Saint Gerard Magella was very largely controlled by a male religious order, the Redemptorists, who were producing statues, medals, and so on of St. Gerard Magella in order to promote the devotion to him. But in my fieldwork in Newfoundland in Canada, what I found most fascinating was the way that women just picked up that devotion, made it their own, used some of these material objects in very distinctive ways to both help each other and both forge and confirm a relationship with Saint Gerard. So the most common thing I saw in homes where there was devotion to Saint Gerard, people would want to show you their medals. Now these were just little mass-produced medals, but often these medals had been bought in some quantity from redemptorist missions so that women could have them ready to give out to friends who were expecting a baby or wanted to have a baby. These were medals that people put into a glass of water in order to then drink that water and feel that they were you know, literally ingesting some sort of special relational power. These were medals one woman told me of this most moving story of going out in the middle of the night in a storm, and we're talking about Newfoundland in the winter, in order to get a medal, in order to give to a woman who is having difficulty in childbirth. And so it's that sort of relationality and materiality that I think you see carrying on around childbirth and pregnancy, such an anxious time. And I was really interested in Maureen's description because the women I was interviewing in Newfoundland, they were living in these remote coastal settlements. They could be cut off from roads by, by the snow, by the weather. They didn't necessarily have good access to medical facilities. But what they had was this sort of almost sisterhood and this, this relationship with a saint who they felt could really, really help them. And I think it's important as well to say that obviously some Newfoundland women did have access to medical facilities, but that didn't mean they didn't have devotion. So it's the old thing. It's not a matter of either or. You do whatever you think is going to be helpful or efficacious. 
What about objects that people give to St. Gerard and they take to his sanctuary? Because I know not too far away from Capua in Campania, there is the Italian sanctuary of St. Gerard Magella and people take the little blue and um, pink ribbons and photographs of babies that they've had. Is that the same in Newfoundland? Not really, because most of the time the votive element was perhaps that um, a family would give a statue of St. Gerard to a church in thanksgiving uh, for intervention from St. Gerard. There were very few dedicated shrines to St. Gerard in Newfoundland. So, of course, yes, if you go to Italy, if you go to some places where there are St. Gerard shrines, you will see precisely that thanksgivings, perhaps children's clothing, little items like that. And, of course, nowadays you can get mass-produced special candles uh, that you can take along. I've seen them in Westminster Cathedral. So you're showing you're not just lighting any old candle this this is for St. Gerard. So, you know, the technology allows you to do rather specific things. For me, the interesting thing was that in Newfoundland, because of the isolation, people weren't, for the most part, going there. But they had this virtual shrine in the League of St. Gerard. So, if they had a successful pregnancy, they wrote to the League of St. Gerard in mainland Canada. And that became their virtual shrine, and so they would be buying league membership for other women. They would be buying medals for other women. They would be asking for statues that they would then place in their home and lend out. So it was, do you see what I mean? In the absence of a shrine centre, they were making a network which all absolutely hinged on these physical objects. EJ, your work in Italian sanctuaries has also engaged with votives related to fertility and early infancy. So, for instance, you've looked at anatomical votives, including the models of swaddled babies. Can you describe these? When did they start being dedicated and, and where? They're quite similar in some ways to the uh, infants that the mothers from Capua that Maureen studied um, look like. So they're basically made of terracotta, uh, made using moulds, and they show young infants uh, with their arms tightly close to their body and sort of wrapped around with, with swaddling bands, usually leaving their faces that look quite like chubby babies, sometimes sort of smiling, um, and also often their feet uh, sticking sticking out um, and they can range in size so some of them are, are life size some of them are um, really quite tiny and again they're found at sanctuary sites across mostly central Italy some of them you do find in southern parts of Italy but mostly around um, Latium and Etruria and again dating them is a little bit difficult but they are found alongside anatomical votives quite often and they're usually assigned to a period between about the fourth and the maybe mid first century BCE it seems on stylistic grounds, because people quite like to, to do that with these um, these models that, that are sort of figured, so they've got features that you can try and, and date, that maybe the babies are particularly popular between the sort of 3rd and 2nd centuries um, BC. How much do we know about the people who dedicated these offerings? Oh, I wish I knew a lot more about them. Um, we don't really... Well, the, the models themselves don't really 
give us very much information because they are just models of infants and um, none of the excavated examples have inscriptions on, so they're not, um, they don't have, have names attached to them. But we can probably surmise that it's not infants themselves that are making these offerings, that it's the parents or the other caregivers who are um, giving them on, uh, on behalf of, of the infant. And various people have debated why they might be doing that. So some people have suggested that they are offerings linked to um, petitions or requests for pregnancy and for, for safe birth and so on. Other people have suggested that they might be related to infants who had been ill and who, through intervention by the divine, had been healed. And so the parents gave an offering of thanks. But it seems like there are lots of other votive offerings available that you could use for both of those situations. So wombs, for example, lend themselves much more towards pregnancy, as do these very rare um, models of pregnant torsos, and other votives of older children who are sort of sitting up and playing with things um, would be more appropriate if your child was, say, one year, old, one year old or something like that and had been ill. So it's perhaps possible that we might think that these parents are giving these offerings in relation to the fact that these children are swaddled. So swaddling lasts about two months. Um, after that, the baby is all firmed up and is kind of ready to enter society and ready to enter the world. And that might be a good point, a good sort of rite of passage moment, we might say, in order for the parents to say thank you to the divine. You know, the child has survived, the child has um, also been moulded appropriately. Um, and that would be a good point to give an offering. And I sometimes wonder whether they would actually give the swaddling bands themselves. Um, but in many cases, they might invest if they've got some money in a, in a model of, a, of an infant showing sort of that stage of life that's been successfully um, uh, negotiated. I know in your work, you're drawing quite a lot on new archaeological theories. Can you talk to us a bit about the ways that these are causing you to reappraise the votives, the swaddled babies and, and the anatomical body parts as well? Well, I'm quite interested in some methodologies connected with um, sensory experience and material engagement. When I was in the archives in Italy, interacting with some of these models, I was really struck by particularly the life-size ones and how, how they made me feel, basically, as I carried them around these museum storerooms, as I picked them up and as I put them down, um, as I had them sort of resting across my two arms sort of cradled holding the head and holding the feet as I would if somebody had given me um, a real baby and so how they made me feel like I was holding a baby and they look a little bit like babies but then they don't smell like babies and they don't move like babies and they don't sound like babies and I was found that quite an interesting um, sort of juxtaposition that they sit somewhere between being babies and non-babies at the same time and I think that's quite an underappreciated factor in the way in which, um, well, all sorts of um, material objects in the ancient world are studied, but in particular, these votives, I think, because it reminded me that these are not just things that we look at, or not just things that people who dedicated them looked at, so they're not just about what they represent, but they were things that people, they interacted with, so real parents carried these babies into the sanctuary, gave them to the gods, and then walked out empty-handed, and so I think ideas like that make us think about objects as things and how things can mess with our sort of sensory perceptions but how that might be perfectly normal in the setting of a sanctuary where you've got all sorts of boundaries being messed around with anyway between divine and mortal um, and particularly with rites of passage going on and people moving between different states of being so there's kind of 
the, this this idea that the objects themselves have a role to play in that, and it's not just you know they look like babies, therefore they're representing babies, but they they do something more than that. Um, I think is quite um, is quite exciting, really. Let me remind you that you're listening to a podcast from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. Tabitha Moses is a contemporary artist whose work often addresses the theme of fertility as well as infertility and motherhood. For her, the imagery and history of votive offerings has been a powerful source of creativity. I spoke to her about her work, and particularly a piece called The Go-Between, which was commissioned by the Victoria Gallery in Liverpool as part of their exhibition Phantom Limb. I was commissioned to make a piece of work that would engage the audience, the visitors to the gallery. So inspired by the Welcome Collection and just, you know, a long-standing interest in votive objects, I decided to ask people for their stories. So there was a notice board where, and a little sort of quiet area where people could write on a postcard their experiences of themselves or a loved one and... Um, illness or healing or trauma and then they would pin it to the notice board and so then you had this lovely over the course of the exhibition which ran for about three months I think you had this lovely accumulation of all these stories and that was a really powerful piece in itself but then next to the notice board was a plinth with just a plain um, cloth body almost life-size cloth body stuffed with sawdust and every so often I would go into the gallery and select one of the stories and then make a votive object based on the story and then pin the object to the relevant part of the body on the um, the big cloth body that was on the plinth. So over the course of the exhibition these the body started out with one object on it that I made in advance, one I made earlier and then over the course of the exhibition, more and more objects were added to the body. Me, my husband and my daughter were on holiday. Um, and we, me and my daughter were just playing in the mud. And we were visiting family and my husband was packing the car up on the last day. And I said, come on, we'll go and make some mud and play. So me and my daughter were make, playing in the mud. And I just started making this little figure. And I knew that we were going to start we decided to try for another baby and we were going to start IVF again. And so I just started talking about it with my daughter and saying, this is a little baby that we're inviting into our family and do you want to have a go? And we both sort of joined in making it together. And then um, it was a really, really special moment where I, I really felt like properly in the moment, not an artist doing it, just as an actual person asking the universe for this thing. So then I went, uh, we went and let it dry in the sun and then my husband um, put the eyes on it or poked the little holes for eyes. So I really liked that it was made by all three of us. And then I added some beads to it and I added three beads of one colour for us to, to symbolise us three already. And then one bead of another colour to symbolise the baby that was being invited into our family. And then uh, I can't remember when I got the idea to add it to the to the body in the gallery, but it was just really good timing that, um, yeah, the body was there. Probably when I came back off holiday, thought I'll add my own story. We did have IVF and it worked, but then I had a miscarriage. Um, so 
then I thought, then we were going back to visit the same family in Devon the following year. And I thought, oh, I should take that little clay baby and take it back to the earth where it came from. And um, and then it sort of, I was, you know, life was happening and it was packed in the bottom of a box in my studio and I just ended up not taking it. And so sort of like practicalities came in the way there of sort of rounding off the magic. And this is where it's, oh, what is it? There's, a, there's this area where, is it an art object or is it my human object now because it's it's now a piece of art that was part of a work of art that should that then be preserved for the future for future exhibitions or do I then see myself not as an artist but as the human that made that object and take it away and let it sort of finish its cycle of life and death I think that's an interesting point where is it art or is it what is the function of the object now it's changed it's got, a, it's got a complexity. EJ, what's your reaction to what Tabitha described? I was, well, I was quite struck and I found quite powerful what she was saying about the making of this little clay figure and, um, and what it meant to her. And the fact that that, as, some, as somebody who's an archaeologist who works on things that were made two and a half thousand years ago, that we don't know who, who made them, that I find that quite thought-provoking because that's the sort of part of the process that we miss in terms of thinking about devotive offerings and so things like the swaddled infants that I look at they're usually described as mass-produced we don't really mean mass-produced we mean sort of they're produced in series they're made in molds and so you almost get this this just impression that there's just you know this sort of production line and they're being made but it made me think there's one from Vey and it's a very small one it's about 13 centimeters tall um, and um, it's actually based on a figurine of a, I think it's based on a figurine of a, an adult woman, but it sort of had this extra bit of clay sort of just squidged around it to turn it into an infant. And it just made me think of that in terms of whether this was a way in which, I don't know, the, the, the parents maybe did that as a way of thinking about this future adult woman that their child might become or or whatever but it just made me realize that there are tiny little glimpses in there but that that's those are big questions about how we, we're just missing that really emotional process that she talks about and then and I'm sure that what she's talking about is it's quite unique and that's probably not what lots of people in the ancient world did but it just it just reminds me that people made these things in the ancient world and people attached all sorts of meanings to them in the process of making them as much as they did in dedicating them. So that we're, you know, there are questions to be asked there and things to be thought about. Marion? I, of course, was really interested in the way that this object that was very intentionally made and very creatively made, the way that its significance and her relationship with it has changed over time. And I think that's that's really, for me, a very powerful example of how we relate to objects and we re-narrate them depending on what stage of life we're at and so I'm thinking very much I have in my head an image of a very battered statue of Saint Gerard Magella um, that was bought in Thanksgiving and it was very much seen as placing Saint Gerard in the home um, but over the years, this has been lent out to other people, and then at 
one point, she, the, the woman in question had it with her, she had it with her in bed when she was having her last child. And she felt that close to St. Gerard that she could almost see him there. Um, so this, this thing that a lot of the time was just a kind of, oh, among one of a, a number of holy statues, as it were. Mm -hmm. But at various times, it comes into its own and, and does different things. Um, and so there's that relationality that I keep going on about. But I do think, you know, how we, we do have relationships with objects. The other thing is, of course, I'm fascinated not just by what people take and leave at shrines, but what they take away. And so we are privileged in some ways that that object has been on display, that we can see pictures of it. But if it had been taken away and maybe buried back in the sand where it came from, uh, we wouldn't know it existed. And that for me is all, always the thing that all the things we don't know about from medieval shrines, we know about the lead badges, but we don't know about the more organic things. We don't know about the flowers. We, you know, there's so much we don't know because what we have is what we have. It's what's left. But, you know, there's this whole other life of objects and people's relationship with them that we can't begin to scratch the surface. But at least I'm lucky because most of the time I'm dealing with live people, so I get to ask some questions and to observe. <laughs> okay, well, that is a difference because we're dealing with people who can no longer speak for themselves. And what they have left behind have a certain permanency to them. And so we see some of the things that were made, some of the things that were dedicated uh, some of the things to which prayers and hopes were attached. Uh, and also, when we're looking at these terracotta votives or the, the tufa statues of the women from Capua, we're looking at the end of a process, presumably a successful outcome, that one has been cured or one has conceived, and these are visible offerings uh, in thanks for that. But what we will never be able to get at is what happens when the petition was not successful because they were in no way obliged to, to give the god a, an offering if he or she hadn't helped them. It doesn't mean that, of course, they might not have had a memento at home, but if it's made of wax or textile uh, or a little clay figurine, we will never be able to explore that. So I think the difference of going back two and a half thousand years is quite... Um, pivotal here. But we can use something like this, however, to extrapolate and to think about what people might have done in the past as well, even though we can't prove it. Yeah. And can I just say that's why I think the whole collaboration we've been able to build up at the Open University between religious studies and classical studies has been so mutually beneficial for us all. Finally, may I ask you each to pick out one object that you've encountered during your work on votives, fertility and early infancy, which has had a particular impact on you. Can you describe it and explain why it's important to you? Okay, for me, I think it would have to be the swaddled infant that first made me start thinking about what it was like to actually hold these objects. And that comes from... Um, the site of Gravisca, which is the, the port area associated with Tarquinia. And it's a really quite chunky, um, just about life-sized 
um, terracotta model. It's about 60 centimetres long. Um, it's a, a child who's complete, it's complete, and they're completely wrapped up from head to toe. Um, you turn it over, and there are tiny little uh, ridges in the in the cloth, or it's little buttocks are basically. So it's very, it's kind of, it's both really solid, but also kind of flexible at the same time. And that was the first object that. Um, I really thought about how I was being made to move by the object and, and the fact that I felt like I was holding a baby, but it was this really heavy, chunky piece of, of terracotta at the same time. I think one of the most moving objects I found, but also shows that multivalence of both objects and context and so on, uh, was the fact in the Placentia B um, maternity facility in Newfoundland, there used to be a very, very battered picture of a representation of St. Gerard Magella. These were issued by the League of St. Gerard. A number of people had them. But for me, what was striking was that a woman in Thanksgiving had left her picture of St. Gerard in the maternity room, in thanksgiving, both for her successful pregnancy and so that he could help other women coming after her. And indeed, a midwife confirmed that often women did ask for this picture to be taken away from the windowsill and put under the pillow. And a number of women I interviewed talked about the fact that they'd been anxious, they'd been wheeled into this maternity suite and there, to their great surprise and pleasure, was St Gerard, and what a difference that had made. So, as a votive, it wasn't in a grand shrine, it wasn't anything expensive or extravagant or showy, it was that one thing which had been given in Thanksgiving, but in such a particular location that it went on to be very much a performative object throughout its biography. Well, I guess the first time I saw one of the women of Capua uh, was one of those moments. And it wasn't in Capua at all. It was in Rome. And it was in the Villa Giulia, the Etruscan Museum. And I'd gone through looking at various things and came out into this little porch that has some very unloved, dust-covered sarcophagi and two statues of a woman with a swaddled infant. And one of them is breastfeeding this infant. And I just automatically assumed that these would be locally produced or perhaps be Etruscan because they're in the Etruscan Museum. Um, and I've since found out that the two objects are mislabeled, uh, but they are, in fact, from the, the shrine, the sanctuary at Capua. And when I realized that things could be misidentified, be taken away from its context, and I really needed to go back to look at Capua and see what was there going to the museum the first time and seeing about a hundred of them. It was absolutely magnificent. Seeing all the sizes, all the shapes, the number of children, the ones that still have a bit of plaster on them and paint, because they're made of a very coarse stone. Each one is individual. Each one is separately made. They're custom-made objects. They are not mass-produced. And they're covered with plaster to improve the looks. And they're painted, and they would have looked very lifelike. And just thinking about that made the whole forest of mothers with babies littering and crowding a sanctuary, making it very busy, uh, made me think about how one engaged with objects such as these. Thank you very much.
That brings our discussion to a close. I'd like to thank Professor Maureen Carroll for joining us at the Open University to tell us about her work on Mata Matuta and other ancient italic votives. And thank you too to Emma-Jane Graham, Marion Bowman and Tabitha Moses for sharing their perspectives on this topic. You can visit the website of the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion to find links to some of the objects and places that we've been talking about today, together with a bibliography and a link to Tabitha Moses' website, where you can find out more about her work and how it's been inspired by ancient and contemporary practices of dedicating votives. I'm Jessica Hughes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion.